to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here with episode 49 in our Penguin Little Black Classics review collection. This is when we walk through and read through the Penguin Little Black Classics literary collection. It's a sort of sampling of world literature in 80 slim volumes. And again, today we are reviewing the 49th book in that collection. It is The Figure in the Carpet, which is a Henry James... I saw online, I think it was Wikipedia, they labeled it as like a kind of novella, but it's also kind of just a short story as well. Joining me today for the review is our now semi-regular guest, if not semi-permanent guest, if that is a contradictory (laughs) thing I can say. Amanda's here. (laughs) Thanks, Amanda, for joining us. Yeah, anytime. We're excited to be talking about Henry James, a true kind of literary titan or icon of sorts. Now, granted, to be fair, we could say that about a lot of the authors Penguin has chosen so far. It's been right. kind of a, a sampling of the quote unquote big names in the canon. But yeah, Henry James is pretty legendary. Had you read any Henry James before? I have to assume you had. I think it's like you can't get through a literary studies program, I think, without encountering him. What's funny is that I have read, I read uh, Daisy Miller, but... Yeah. I'd never read anything of Henry James that was assigned to me. Like none, it was never assigned to me. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Which I I found weird too. Yeah. (laughs) That story is a short story or a novella also though, right? Yeah. It's a shorter novel. Yeah. So probably a novella. I remember distinctly reading that as well for my American realism class, which I think last week we talked about Edith Wharton. Right, uh, I think yeah. that was last week's episode. Yeah. And so he pairs well in that same era. I read again, I think it was a Wikipedia put it this way that Henry James is viewed as sort of a bridge between realism and modernism because he mm. wrote like right in that sweet spot. You know, he wasn't like writing with Fitzgerald and Hemingway quite at that time, but also mm. he wrote you know, like early 1900s. Right. So I think, you know, his style is sort of emblematic of that. And we'll probably get into that today in the, to the discussions. Yeah, I'm surprised you'd never been assigned it though. But I guess, you know, you ended up reading right a lot more Brit lit than American. Yeah, that was kind of my concentration as an undergrad was a yeah. lot of Brit lit. And Henry James very famously, though, kind of had that expat mentality where yeah. a lot of his subject matter is about people living abroad. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think he I don't know if any because isn't Daisy Miller the whole thing about her living in Italy and being kind of like an egregious American in Italy? That's yeah, kind that's of what exactly I remember. what it was. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's like her. She's got this really flamboyant. Well, for them anyway, for, for a pretty buttoned up society, she's got a pretty flamboyant personality or something about mm-hmm. her and kind of ruffles the feathers of high society in Italy. That's yeah. yeah, that's the vague memory I have of that story. But yeah, my opinion of him was kind of like Edith Wharton last week, at least from what I remember in college, which is respect the writing, don't necessarily love it, but find a lot to think about with it. So mm-hmm. at the very least, you're going to get you know a density that you can think a lot about. Um, for this short story, and again, it was just one short story, The Figure in the Carpet, what is your one-sentence simile review of reading this book? I said uh, that reading this is like laying in the grass and looking for shapes in the clouds. So hmm. you're searching for something, right? Anything that has any kind of meaning. And then okay. once you find it, it's like you can't not see it anymore. Okay. I want to be an asshole about this simile and say <laughs> annoying things to you now. Oh, do you great. think then like <laughs> do you think then that like the clouds being generated, that this book has no meaning and that you're just ascribing it randomly to a thing that happened? Ah, see, so that's like part of what I found so interesting about this reading is yeah. is the the idea of the um, authorial purpose and authorial mm-hmm. intent, especially when you think about um, the author reader contract, right? So mm-hmm. what what 
are, am I just searching for meaning? That's kind of like what this whole thing is, is, is the, the main character, the narrator is, is searching for this meaning that the author says there is, but he, even the author is like, oh no, you have to find it. I can't tell you. And he's like, well, right. if you can't tell me, like, is it even there? And he's like, oh no, it's there. It's just that, you know, it's your job to find it, but I'm not right. ever going to tell you what it is. Right. And so it's, which, which begs the question, I mean, is there even like a deeper meaning to that? And, and I think that that's what Henry James was doing was just kind of playing with that. Yeah. And so you've, as an English major, you fall into the trap of, of course you have to find meaning in this story. And then, and I find it so interesting that of course I was searching for a purpose in this story and, and meaning in this story. And at the same time, it's like, poking Henry James is like poking fun at me, the reader for trying to find meaning in the story. Yeah. And in that way it does get kind of meta. Yeah. We will definitely get into that in depth. Um, We do try and avoid, I guess, spoilers as far as that term goes these days, but we'll definitely have to explain some of the premise and some of the plot stuff just to even get into what makes it interesting. I think, because if we were just to give the one sentence version, I don't think it would be, it's kind of why I found the beginning off putting. You really have to do get into some of the depths to, kind of get the interesting parts out of this yeah no i think that yeah it's an interesting one if only we could pose questions to the clouds you know if only <laughs> and at least in this story he gets to interact with the author which we'll talk about too i i found my simile to be maybe too again meta but it, it reading this book is not unlike the feeling of doing the thing it's about so it's like <laughs> this book kind of has a character who almost goes on a conspiracy style quest or kind of ranting for something Mm -hmm. now again i I don't think it goes that maybe conspiracy is too far but that's the comparison you could make it's like if you ever met someone who like deeply believes in a kind of conspiracy style thing and in these days you can you know just go to the internet and take your pick right the flat earth people the 9-11 inside job people there's the classic (laughs) kennedy assassination various theories about that moon moon landings etc so it's like (laughs) often with these often when you engage sincerely engage too because it's easy to dismiss a lot of those things but when you sincerely engage it's it's not that those people don't often have a detail or two to kind of like that grabs your attention or that piques your contemplation and interest i think that that's often the case and I, i remember like in high school, we had a teacher who really didn't believe in the moon landing and he kind of one day just laid it out for everybody. And I, I remember, you know, giving him my sincere attention because I, you know, he's like a authority figure I liked and respected. Right. And a couple of the things he said, I was like, oh, it's pretty compelling. But I, but then a lot of the other things you just kind of have to roll your eyes because there's there's these logical jumps that sometimes they'll make or assumptions about conspiracy and uh, group think that they kind of assume. And I don't know, I think. It to me, reading this felt like that. Where it, there were enough moments of attention grabbing and interest grabbing, but then sometimes my eyes were just kind of like rolling back. Which, granted, <laughs> and we'll we'll get to this in a second in terms of just general enjoyment. Maybe towards the end, actually, in the reviews. But I think maybe that was kind of the point. I don't know. And I, and if it was the point, then I admire it. Though I don't know if it worked perfectly, but. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that was the point. Like basically what I'm trying to establish here early is I, I hope that none of this was so, supposed to be taken very seriously, I guess, is what I'm saying. If if this yeah. is a short story of dead seriousness, then I really think it's awful. And if it's not, then I actually think it might be good or pretty good. So, yeah, yeah and we'll, we'll talk about the tone or the kind of components that make that up. Did you find any, and I guess I've already alluded to some of mine anyway, did you find any meaningful t- connections to life in 2020? We like to give some kind of relevance to the listeners right away as well when we do our reviews. Did any I- immediate modern connections stand out? Yeah, the 
I guess it was like based on the way that I, I approached the story itself, but anyone who is an artist or who is passionate about art and art, of course, also means literature, yeah. um, then I think that this is going to be an interesting read for that person just because it is all about finding um, purpose in in the art and authorial purpose. Mm -hmm. So if anyone has studied it or anyone who's interested in it or is uh, a component of it, I think that they would find this really interesting. And I think too, what jumped out to me was, I think you're going the more high-minded route, you know, quote unquote high-minded, but because I mean, that's, there's like, those are disciplines, right? I mean, like studying literature, the arts, so you can take that stuff pretty far to even yeah. a professional level, become a you know critic or whatever. I think to me, the the more simple connection would be just to like fan cultures that have spawned up in the last like, I don't know, decade and a half. Granted, a lot of that stuff, like or especially around comics and that, that kind of fiction has existed for a while, but it's really become ingrained in the culture in like the last decade or two. And yeah. Marvel kind of pulled that off Star Wars maybe a bit. I think and those kind of fan cultures, I don't know, it's I, I engage with a lot of that fiction and enjoy parts of it, too. Um, but I think there becomes this sort of lock and key mystery mentality mm -hmm. that ends up being more about like who can solve a riddle more than who can like think about human ideas and bigger questions that I think drives me crazy. Like it's not why I enjoy fiction. Um, I don't enjoy fiction because I think somebody made a puzzle box that I can unlock. Right. I read it for very different reasons though. You know, the strategies that I use to engage with fiction might seem puzzle boxy. Mm -hmm. I just would never ascribe or at least I hope I wouldn't, but I, I would almost never ascribe one meaning to a work. You know, I also wouldn't right. go so far as to say there's infinite meaning. I think that's also ludicrous. I don't I don't go full postmodern. Um, so I'm not on that board either. But anyway, I just there's something about that those fandoms. And again, maybe Marvel really encourages this because they started doing the we're going to have post credits that link all of this, which then encourages people to go back over the main texts and kind of look for small things and be like, Oh, do you see in the, you know, in the background of the frame, right. there's this, which tells me it's this in the timeline. And the, you know, the, they're obsessed with timelining things and like plotting things out. And it, it just becomes puzzle boxy, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. almost, almost conspiracy level, but they're feeding it. Like that's, that is kind of the brand of fiction. They're right. building that into their own, I don't know, storytelling and worlds. So I think this deals a lot with those themes. I don't think in a complimentary way though. Yeah, I agree. I, I which think is he's crucial. poking fun at them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that and that becomes or became for me about halfway through that finally clicked in my mind that that's what was going on. And so I think that kind of not saved it, but made me enjoy reading it a lot more than mm -hmm. the first half. Any quotes that you want to begin with today? This is when we'll dive in kind of deep into the style and the and the feeling of reading this text. Um, anything from the figure in the carpet jump out? I saw you and I both pick some long ones this time. Yeah, well, he. What's funny is that he, a lot of his sentences and his paragraphs, unlike Wharton and unlike um, who is another one, um, uh, Gilman, right? Um, mm -hmm. Who who we both enjoyed. Uh, yeah, they tend to do like shorter, more concise stuff. But he is the opposite. He seems to actually like kind of yeah really um, expand out his sentences. But the the nice thing about that is that, yeah, he has longer sentences, but the next sentence, he kind of ties it together with the previous sentence. Um, so even though it's longer and, and, you know, asks for more of your attention, I think that he still mm -hmm. shows um, a level of mastery over his craft. Um, so for example, um, in chapter five, 
since I I printed mine off instead of using the book, so I just yeah yeah did no chapter. <laughs> and I could the chapters are cut up into they're pretty brief. I, I just paid very little mind to them as I was yeah. reading, but that, yeah. they're they're there in mind too. Yeah, I got yeah. you. Perfect. So in chapter five, he writes um, about uh, Gwendolyn. He says she had indeed no sense of humor. And with her pretty way of holding her head on one side was one of those persons whom you want, as the phrase is, to shake, but who have learnt, but who have learnt Hungarian by themselves. She conversed perhaps in Hungarian with Korvik. She had remarkably little English for his friend. So those are two separate sentences. And mm-hmm. the first part of it, right, the first sentence shows us who she kind of like gives us an idea of who she is and how the uh, the narrator feels about her. And in the second sentence, by playing on the idea of like the, the learning Hungarian, which is not what she's actually doing, it's just like an image that he created. Um, that is... Uh, him, uh, him, Henry James, I should say, James mm-hmm. is um, then showing her reaction to the narrator and also just kind of like playing on that, that funny kind of image of there. Obviously, she's not literally speaking Hungarian to Korvik, but it's this idea of like the estrangement between the narrator and um, Gwendolyn and just highlighting yeah, it, that. It does have this tone of sort of like authorial or I guess narrator. Um, but this was first person, right? So that yeah. complicates if it the nar- that is the narrator or not, whatever. We, we can't right. ask questions that big, I don't think, here. But <laughs> yeah. I, it does – because I noticed it too once you pointed it out in a couple of your quotes that he has this tendency of doing jokes almost like – again, I can't tell if it's the narrator character making the joke or if it's just – if it's like the author having fun with the joke. I fe- and it feels to me more detached like it is the author mm-hmm. p- throwing some description out there. Mm-hmm. Um to the extent that like even looking at the quote you just pulled, like I, I it's funny because I, I know some of the humorous moments too. You also pulled that shoulder one, which maybe I'll have you read next actually. And I'll, yeah. we'll, we won't go back and forth because I want to get to that quote too. Yeah. When I read that, I didn't, it, it's almost like for some reason is a bit of characterization. I didn't feel like I was getting to know the narrator character at all. It felt more like an author throwing a joke in. So I guess oh, to sure. me, it felt like there was a friction between the author just riffing and then the, actually imbuing the character with life it just for some reason and i wish i could articulate this better maybe i'll come up with some way to phrase it but it didn't feel it felt like there was a friction between those things and it felt like it never the character never embodied those moments of humor Mm -hmm. or they never like it never got absorbed into the character himself it was just sort of like the author's being funny at this time not the character narrating it just i guess it didn't feel personable or real but it felt funny though like i you know, there's these little, there are these twists or these, um, not quite puns, but so, I guess some of them were kind of puns that sit in the text. I don't know. It just felt incongruous isn't the right way. Cause I did like, you know, I chuckled at a couple of them and, yeah. and annotated a couple. What's the, could, do you mind being thrown back in with the sure. shoulder quote? Let's just talk about that one. What's yeah. that one? So this one's from chapter two. Um, and it's when um, Varric had insulted the narrator's uh, review of his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then Varric finds out that it was actually the narrator and he's like coming to apologize. So he's, yeah. um, the narrator says, I protested that no bones were broken, but he moved with me to my own door, his hand on my shoulder, kindly feeling for a fracture. And on hearing that I had come up to bed, he asked leave to cross my threshold and just tell me in three words what his qualification of my remarks had represented. It was plain he really feared I was hurt and the sense of his solicitude suddenly made all the difference to me. Mm-hmm. so yeah and i totally understand what you're saying about like not 
seeing these these descriptions as necessarily part of the the narrator himself being the one to describe it but actually that the the idea of the authorial voice being interjected there i agree i think that this is less of like i don't get the sense that the narrator himself would have this style of writing and that he he's the one necessarily who who shows his personality i think that yeah it is james's personality and i just look through. at and not, and not that every author is beholden to i guess two points i want to make on that quote yeah. i don't think any author is beholden to making any character likable so it's not like it's a likability thing for me yeah. it's more of just what who is this character then like would he make that joke about the fracture and kind of like you said, it's it's a d- decent play with language and like kind of a funny thing that he feels emotionally hurt, but is being exaggerative and he knows it's that. But then he goes back to the physical joke, like the frat feeling for a fracture, obviously non-literal or, you know, pro- you know, most likely non-literal. Yeah. I like all that. So it's playful. Like, I, and I think it reads well. Yeah. But I'm also just left wondering, like, what does that have to do? I guess this is my second question then. Why does it have to be in first person? Like, I feel like a line or a play like that, a twist on language like that works when I don't have to think that the narrator is like hand holding me through a journey, which is, I mean, in first person, that's kind of always how I feel to a degree. Mm-hmm. And I just think when you throw in the first person, you have to be, your language has to be so much more careful because if you break the narrator from the character who's supposed to be the narrator, then I just, I don't know. It feels very incongruous to read to me or it feels very odd. Um, I would almost like, and this is, this gets to really big questions that, you know, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but when I read older (laughs) literature, because language has evolved so much in, you know, a hundred years, 200, 300, whatever, the first person versions of that stuff just feel so foreign. And I get, I, I think a lot of modern readers come at old literature in that mind where they're like, this doesn't sound how like anyone sounds anymore, which mm-hmm. means these don't feel like people to me anymore. You know, maybe that's right. extreme, but I think this kind of had that feeling where it's, I'm appreciative, but it just feels like, I don't know, the character is from a distance, which maybe kept me from getting into it for a while. Again, it took me about halfway until the plot and like the, the, the clear messages or themes or ideas became more obvious to me where I was like, Oh, this is a story about fan obsessions or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then I got more engaged, but anyway, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on the, the narrative. And that, I think that quote shows it really well. And I, I wonder too, if the, the disconnect between the narrator and the author there where, where we're seeing that, uh, some of the descriptions, aren't necessarily something that we would expect the narrator to have described in his own words. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, and this is of course falling into the trap that uh, James is kind of like making fun of in the, in the story is like, perhaps he did that on purpose. And, and he's kind of like playing with the idea that um, we are trying to maybe analyze it a little too hard and stuff like that. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> he has written a book with a theme that literally undoes everything we're doing in this entire podcast. So the if we if we take if we use the book as a critical tool or lens for ourselves, this whole thing is pointless. So <laughs> I mean, we can uh, hopefully we don't loop back to that. Lo- hopefully we don't get back in that logical loop again. Uh, but I respect if we do. I mean, it's literally would be the book's answer to everything that we're doing right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there we go. Thank you, Henry James. We respect you. Um, rest in peace, friend. Um, we do under. I think we do understand what you 
you were getting after to a degree. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me let me throw in one quote that I pulled that kind of I, it was a quote that I pulled in the negative. It's like part of the characterization that just didn't work for me. Right. Um, and my, this is from page 28. So that's for me a little around halfway through the book. Um, this is on that page. The narrator is wondering. Not only had I lost the books, but I had lost the man himself, which is the author he's obsessed with. They and their author had been alike spoiled for me. I knew, too, which was the loss I most regretted. I had taken to the man still more than I had ever taken to the books. My annotation on that page was literally the word why. Like, mm-hmm. I, did, I don't understand. Why did he, not why does he obsess over the meaning in the work? He's a literary critic. He's probably just an obsessive person. You know, he wants to know. He wants to be insightful and impress at dinner parties. It's like, why did this author mean so much? They never talk about what his works are about. They have one interaction on the page. Otherwise, it's all summary. It's like, oh, and then I met him once and he was charming again. I just, it, their relationship didn't come to life at all. So when he says something like, the works didn't matter to me anymore. I didn't want to lose this man in my life. It's like you, you met him twice. And yeah. one time he like charmingly kind of like um, j- jibbed. Is that the word? Like, you know, played with you or he kind yeah. of like charmingly messed with you and kind of taunted you. And then all of a sudden I'm supposed to believe, I don't know. It's just this one-sided chat with no substance. There's no mm-hmm. personal progression. There's just no character to this and there's no right. life in their relationship. So I don't know if a bit like that is supposed to humanize the author a little, make him seem more personal. I, I just, there were too many character moments like that where I just asked, what what is the, I don't know what my engagement with this person is supposed to be, um, which again, we'll, I'll talk more in the review how that sets up, but moments like that are just off-putting to me, especially really strong revelations like that or where they're kind of framed as like, I don't know, it feels like big moments, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It just didn't land. I don't know. Yeah, when I read that, quote i was thinking that the the reason for uh the narrator uh, saying that he Mm -hmm. he would miss the person more i was thinking more along the lines of he would miss that person yeah he's like saying that he's a nice guy or whatever that he had taken to the man still more but i was thinking of like that he needs the author in order to like justify like whatever if he does find you know, what the author is getting at. He needs to have the author actually like tell him. So it's like, he liked him. He was nice enough. But what I think really was the root of it was, was that he felt he needed him. And that's what it was. Because I agree that that's the takeaway in the end, especially with his behavior towards his two, well, kind of friends who, um, but both end up deceased. Yeah. Um, I guess we're just spoiling that again. We try and veer away from spoilers, but kind of without knowing where this story goes again, it doesn't, it doesn't make much sense to talk about it without that stuff Yeah. anyway, but like his obsession extends beyond his personal relationship. So it's, it's again, clear that the, it's the obsession and the chase of the meaning that he's after. Yeah. I guess it's just the phrasing in those sentences then like yeah. taken to the man to me doesn't mean I found the quest intriguing. That's like, that seems like a personal like affection thing. And I guess maybe it's just the way it's phrased or something. Cause I agree with you in the end. I think I get the gist where it's like, yeah, he didn't, they didn't, he didn't want to be buddies. Like he, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a personal relationship to him. It was more of the quest and he needs the author for the quest. Um, I just, I don't know. It's something about the way it was phrased. there. just, it landed limp to me and it just didn't make sense. I, I also saw it as his, um, misunderstanding of himself and his lack of certain depth because uh, throughout the story, you actually see that the narrator like 
especially at the beginning when he's first meeting Varric and he's like, oh yeah, I wanted to talk to him about my review and like kind of tell him how amazing I am as a reviewer and that I wrote this amazing review about him and that, Mm -hmm. you know, I got at him. Um, But then like this girl while they're on their walk is like, kind of interjects herself and like starts talking to him and, and he's like, uh, like she's just so <laughs> he's like out of jealousy. He's talking like smack about her. Like, Oh, how can she just interject like that? Like he wasn't yeah. even talking to her, but he was going to do the same thing. It's just that she got there first. So I think right. it's a lack of awareness on his part and a lack of understanding of himself and, and maybe, yeah, so it's like he's he thinks of the man at this point as uh, the author as a friend or somebody that he really likes. But then later on, he's like, yeah, he, he's like dying. But and I could have gone to see him, but I, I didn't go to see him. Like, it, he's just not self-aware enough, which is also what the author said about him. He's like, you know, maybe you're on the verge of it, but you're not aware enough to actually like find the treasure to find what I'm actually getting at. Yeah. And so I think that that's just a reflection of his immaturity. And this is, I think where just cultural loss in translation happens. Mm -hmm. I think, because I think by the end, I thought the the main character was like loathsome kind of, but the, the, because the language, the situations, the, again, the culture society that just the plot wraps up in, it just never, feels aggressively that way again i think by the middle or especially in the back half there's enough character work for there was enough there for me to start to latch onto these major ideas and be like oh yes this is a heavy critique actually it's not some like again sincerely told story of just somebody who's intrigued it's like a takedown of that person in a way Mm -hmm. and so this is a case too where i guess i just had my brain didn't translate that in the first half which is why i found that part really dreadful to read and just like this is really a mundane like boring character piece with not much happening. And then uh, with a character that again, I I just didn't pick up much interest in, but I think in the back half it, yeah, there's enough kind of stuff and revelations that I don't know. I think it made those ideas way clearer to me in the back half. Um, I did in the front half, the quote I pulled that I, the thing that really engaged me right away was when he met the author and they Mm -hmm. had their little couple page banter Mm -hmm. because that was when I think I started to pick up for the first time that because this author was needling him in this really like utterly non-helpful way, this like blatantly (laughs) obfuscated way, just aggressively pointlessly. So I think that was when my brain flipped the switch to thinking like he is clearly taking this author down in a sense. Like this guy is supposed to be sort of character, kind of a ridiculous, I don't know, maybe self aggrandizing person or something. He, Mm -hmm. some of the quotes I pulled from him is, Um, When he's describing his own literature and his own writing, he says, it's really quite an exquisite scheme. Mm -hmm. It stretches this little trick of mine from book to book and everything else comparatively plays over the surface of it. Ah, my dear fellow, it can't be described in cheap journalese. And (laughs) just those sentences that kind of they're meant to, again, obfuscate and kind of hide. But then when prodded to reveal anything, he just refuses or, or can't. And I think that interaction I thought was so rich and kind of fun and funny. Yeah. I guess the parts leading up to it or maybe in between in a sense, just sort of let me down. Like I remember distinctly there's the whole dinner, dinner party set up to that conversation that kind of precedes it. Yeah. And he's worried about like who's seated where and who can hear whom. And it, it's that high society stuff that to me makes my eyes again, r- just roll back. And my, it's the thing I have to fight when I'm reading some of these, some of this literature from like the 1800s and early 1900s, just because the very social setup 
holds no interest to me or very, very little interest. And so I really have to fight it to get to the ideas I want to engage with. Yeah. So I think maybe that was it for me. It could literally be that simple of just like, because I have a hard time jumping that hurdle to get to the better stuff. Um, that, that was probably just the barrier for me. But then a conversation like that, like I quoted, I just loved reading. I thought it was like vapid and funny and like kind of insightful, but stupid. And again, in, in smart ways and clever ways. Yeah, the, the way that um, the all the stuff that was written prior to the two of them actually mm-hmm. like having that banter, um, I saw that actually as the narrator's actual uh, character development. So because it was written from the narrator's voice and, and, you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning. So it was more bland, right? Versus yeah, like yeah. when we, we think that the author is interjecting. So the, the narrator's actual like uh, language and stuff like that, it shows that he's, you know, not as like creative necessarily, but that he thinks he is. It shows that he very much cares about his social position. And he also mentions money quite a few times. So we know that he's very interested in his finances and in in a certain level of prestige and all this. So everything that I read up to that point, I looked at it as character development so that I could get an idea of the narrator and, and how much I really didn't much care for the narrator necessarily um but to also show that the narrator is arrogant and that he's very much um somebody who only thinks about himself right i mean and he keeps trying to get the attention to him and stuff like that so that's how i read it yeah right no and i think it it gets back to i know i've mentioned this i think on the last pod i talked about this too but I guess then the the feeling I had while reading it is the same, which is mundane things don't have to be written mundanely mm-hmm. and and uh, off-putting or objectionable things don't have to be written objectionably or off-puttingly. Yeah. So it's like, just make this boring guy seem boring faster, I guess. Like, you don't have to make <laughs> me, the reader, feel bored and uninterested and like kind of like this malaise of like, oh, what am, what am I reading this for mm-hmm. to get to get the character to get that or to be that <laughs> like I think of um, like a movie. I don't know, like um, there was a movie a few years ago uh, called Patterson that was just it's just about this bus driver in Pennsylvania who lives a very quiet life and he like writes poetry in his free time totally mundane movie like about the most uninteresting life a very peaceful one very satisfying like again there's no i my critique of it would be i it seems like kind of an idyllic life in a way but it's boring if i described to you what happened you'd be like this is a boring movie but it's still like really well made and it was engaging because it's visually engaging the music is interesting there's like these intriguing little illusions and these poetry bits and it's like a movie i enjoyed but I just and I think like you don't have to make me be bored to show me he's boring, I guess. And right. I just felt like the beginning, it just lost me again. I think it really when I started to pick up some of those ideas, I think their conversation was the first catalyst in my brain to be mm-hmm. like, oh, this this is going to deal with some obsession things and fandom and, and like literary and analytical things. It was also when he makes that reference to when he's talking to him. When he talks about like, oh, is it that you prefer the the p sound? He's like, you re- you repeat words with p in it. Is that the is that the trick? And that just hit me in such an English literary studies way of like, oh man, that's just the kind of mundane lock and key type. Like, oh, it's that one thing, right? I just have to find that. It's alliteration. I got it now. I now I understand everything, right? That right. one component reveals it all, and it's absurd to me again. Absurd thinking. Um, to think of it in that isolated sense. Do you have yeah. one more quote you want to get in before we move on to other things? 
Uh, yeah, sure. I've got one. Okay. Um, yeah. And here, this is <laughs> after uh, Varric's death and everything. And mm -hmm. we've got um, uh, the narrator is kind of uh, analyzing Gwendolyn. And he says, um, it gave me the measure of her consummate independence. That independence rested on her knowledge, the knowledge which nothing now could destroy and which nothing could make different. The figure in the carpet might take on another twist or two, but the sentence had virtually been written. At the thought that Verica was perhaps at that moment dying, there rolled over me a wave of anguish, a poignant sense of how inconsistently inconsistently I still depended on him. That's mm -hmm, from chapter yeah. 10. So we see a difference there. So um, Gwendolyn knows the information is refusing to share, but she it, it's, it's about uh, the way that I read this particular paragraph um, was the idea of what the idea of uh, the author and uh, reader contract so she knows yeah. right and she can she's gotten at him in a sense and so she she doesn't need the author anymore because anything that he is to write later she can she already knows what it's going to be essentially even though the words might be different she she's still going to have the sense of it whereas the narrator doesn't and he's like feeling that anguish not because again not because he misses the the author but because he misses the point of the author yeah um anyway so this is this quote in particular for me it it showed like the independence versus the dependence as far as the the, the social construct or the social contract between author and and, yeah. and but it also <laughs> like really brought home to me that I <laughs> am like reading into these things too. And I'm just like, Oh man, Henry James is just poking fun at me. <laughs> I'm like, so <laughs> this particular. Yeah. Well, and I think it's funny though. Cause I, I came with, away from it feeling kind of the same. Like, of course it's, and that's in, in, in its meta sense, probably the most satisfying thing is it's like you read something that was critiquing you the whole time and you yeah. don't really realize it towards the end until yeah. the end. At the same time, I came away from it feeling very safe because I don't obsess about authors. I obsess about the art they made. Right. So it's like the, and it's like he never critiques the art in this book because he never exposes it. That's another thing I felt maddening. It's like they never <laughs> yeah. once talk about the art he made, what he wrote about, the topics yeah. he chose. Yeah. They didn't do any of that. And it's, and so in the sense, I came out also feeling unscathed in my hobbies because I'm like, I don't, I do some light Googling about authors and stuff, but I just don't care that much about who they are. You know, mm -hmm. I care about what they made. Um, again, maybe that's just my own approach. I, I'm just going to throw in my final quote was in one sentence was when he says in the story uh, directly, um, where is it? I have to, oh, it's who alas, but he had the authority, which I think is like basically a summary of the entire tales, good questions yeah. in one question. Um, yeah, it really, perfect. I think that quote kind of hangs up or hinges or the entire crux of what makes this an interesting story to kind of delve into yeah for our literary corner then let's jump to the educational segment of the review did you pull anything or should i do mine i think yours uh when okay. i read yours i thought it was perfect okay well, let's talk about the death of the author then this is a literary kind of theory from post-structuralism from roland barth's who i don't think i encountered in college though man I, I don't remember many of the critics i encountered i remember a lot of the the artists or the writers. Anyway, it, he attacks the common and traditional view of the author as the ultimate explanation of a work, 
sparse and post-structuralist uh, in general, their theories, contends that the author can no longer be regarded as the omniscient and all-pervading presence and influence in a work of literature. He's at pains to show that there is often a big discrepancy between the author's intended goal and the result. And I think the rise of kind of post-structuralism, which we won't break down today in the literary corner and, and <laughs> theories around that though, and like death of author type of ideas. I think it obviously is a heavy critique of the narrator of this story and the main character who's obsessed with the author. Yeah. And I think though, again, when I finished it, I thought that maybe James was just ahead of the curve then. Like post-structuralism didn't exist when he lived, but right. if that is the joke he's making in this work, then he just seems to be ahead of the curve, as I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I think that that is evidence of him. Like when I was, I hadn't like read uh, Bart's or uh, Derrida is a contemporary as well, who was about post-structuralism. Okay. Um, I mm-hmm. haven't read about those guys since um, my master's program. Right. And, right. and I took a class on that and like Derrida just absolutely blew my mind. I was like, what is this guy even writing about? Um, and mm-hmm. also yeah. funny enough, Foucault was also post-structural. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that he, um, they mentioned him in the, so what I just read from was the Penguin Literary Dictionary. And they mentioned uh-huh. Foucault, who you and I did a book club thing in real, a real life book club book with once. We won't <laughs> get into that. It wasn't a debacle. I actually thought it was kind of interesting. It was, my, <laughs> it was It's set up to be a debacle. It had yeah. the making of a debacle and then we <laughs> salvaged it and then we saved it. But anyway, yeah, no, but his idea was kind of more unique and radical, like right. that maybe we won't need people to write literature at all anymore and it can just be like group made or something. I don't know. They, they mentioned his ideas, but they kind of deviated in a weirdly specific way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, as far as, you know, predicting or foreseeing certain trends or literary ideas or theories, this is so weirdly, uh, I was going to say omniscient, that's not the right word, but this so weirdly predicts that trend or that idea that... I thought it was worth bringing up because if you're interested in those ideas or literary theory in general, like this is a oddly perfect short story to read then. Yeah. And when I was um, reading the, the death of the author uh, that you had pulled up, I was immediately, I was just like, yes, that's perfect because it ties in with um, what is um, the author's, uh, what is his end of the bargain? as an author, right? Like he's Mm -hmm. supposed to create this world that he can lead you through, but he also of course creates an art, a piece of art that he has particular purpose for. But then when we get our hands on it, if he's not the one telling us exactly what to look for, then we bring our own experiences and our own interpretations um, into it. And then it completely is like, well, thank you for this piece of art. And I really don't care what you have to say, but I'm going to ascribe my own uh, definitions to what you wrote and just assume that you, you know, that's, that was your purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a, it's, it's really a fascinating topic to dig into, but can become maddening quickly if you, because again, there's a lot of circles of logic you can end up in. Um, I don't ascribe fully, I guess I'll just say that I don't ascribe fully to the death of the author notion. It seems absurd to me that, such a mentally taxing endeavor can be so quickly cast aside as meaningless. Like mm-hmm. that seems insane to me to be like all of that mental labor you performed doesn't mean anything without the reader. Cause it, it would still exist if they wrote it and then never showed it to anyone. Take yeah. Emily Dickinson, for example, it's like she wrote all those poems and never showed them to anyone. And now we just open them up. Like they existed to her and for her, she was the author. So anyway, it, again, there's, there's a lot of things we could untangle. Let's jump into the official reviews then before we rate them. 
let's do the Russell French in memoriam. What's good about it segment. What did you find was something good about reading this? Um, I, I was since last week we did Wharton, I was and we know that Wharton and, and Henry James actually were close contemporaries and that they mm-hmm. um, uh, socialized a lot. I was not surprised by that because both authors are very careful, I feel like, with their word choice and with yeah. their descriptions. I think that Wharton is is better at, at setting. Um, but I think that Henry James did a really good job with um choosing his his language very carefully and and what's funny too for me is that you mentioned uh the quote where he's like oh it's alliteration it's it's got to be the repetition of p's i noticed throughout um this piece that there were several examples of alliteration scattered throughout. And I was just like, I got a little chuckle from that. So (laughs) of course, yeah, he knew that he knew the realm he was playing kind of making fun at or playing with. Yeah. I think to me, the, the best part about it is just the premise, like the, the very concept I could easily see, you know, somebody having this idea and starting to outline it. I just think that, yeah, it provokes important questions about storytelling literature um, and just, I, I think again, for our time, since there's so many more art forms now that do it well, but just storytelling in general, I think if any of these topics we've mentioned interest you, that's again, I guess goes out to all you literary students out there, literature folks. <laughs> yeah. I think this, this short story then is actually a fascinating one to read. I, I, again, I don't know if on narrative merits, I would say it will be satisfying and I'll probably just bleed that point right into my actual review score here, but yeah. I can assure you that it will be thought provoking. I think for me, it's a one. I, which, uh, so on our review scale, one means do not read this. Two means maybe qualified recommendation. And three means uh, you must read this. This one slots nicely into that category I've mentioned uh, many times on reviews and will continue to probably, where I just admire the idea and then ask myself, why is this a story though? Like I, I can read about post-structuralism in a very intriguing way and I can apply those theories to different stories and narratives. And I just... I think it asked a lot of those questions of me. I just didn't find in the, as I'll go to the well on this often, the, the middle school story elements, you know, in the simple mm-hmm. breakdown way. I didn't, I don't know if I connected or found any of that satisfying. The main conflict is though, I think it, and it asks a really fascinating question and I just don't know if it got me over the finish line on thinking, you know, again, I, it's, I came out of it thinking, I'm glad I revisited these ideas that so engaged me, you know, especially when I was in college studying this stuff. But then I ended up thinking like, but I won't remember this kind of story. I don't right. think. So that's, I think, where I land. How about you? Um, I would actually give it a two. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the reason for that, and I, and I completely understand your uh, reservations about the story, but yeah. because I went into it... Um, l- with the idea of um, of the the reader writer contract and stuff like that, I was mm-hmm. able to I think from the beginning kind of like I I also struggled with the very beginning because I was like what is even like going on here? But then when I realized oh this is almost like a satire, then I was able to yeah. uh, have more enjoyment with the reading itself and. So once I realized what the focus of it would be, I I found it very entertaining. And even Mm -hmm. like from a narrative standpoint, there were some pieces that I found really interesting. Like um, one of the questions that I had that never was really answered and and perhaps was just like because of the narrator's perspective. But did Gwendolyn like murder her mom and murder Corvick? Like 
she's there there's some That's interesting right because uh yeah, i hadn't thought the, about that at yeah all. <laughs> so there's like some questions there that were like oh it's okay um and the descriptions were really nice um i think that even if you didn't want to uh, look at it from like the analytical like literary uh mm -hmm. focus i think that you could still find some enjoyment in in the way that it just kind of like pokes fun at like this, this ultra fan and yeah, like kind yeah. of, and also just the, the mystery of like, Hmm, is there evidence that perhaps there was some foul play and stuff like that? So I, to be honest, I didn't given that like subplot of it. I just, I read that series of deaths as just kind of the cascading absurdity of his obsession or something mm. like it. It was just the, it was just a way to like, really amplify the absurdity of his and it just seemed like um what's the greek myth with the the man in the river who can never get the apple it's like his torture tantalus or whatever yeah something like that yeah it, it was sort of like that it was just like an amplified version of that where it's just like we're just gonna tantalize and and aggressively push this away from him in, in a kind of a comical way yeah but no i i think once the plot got going so to speak in in the crudest sense um, I did engage with it a lot more. And even I, I kind of cruised through the back half cause I enjoy Once the kind of the journey or the quest aspect of it kicked in mm -hmm. and it was just clear what his obsession was and how he had to satisfy it. I did. I did really grab onto that. I'm still content with a one. I just think, I think these, again, these questions to me can be better, uh, provoked and answered in just like, yeah, just like look up what post-structuralism is to an extent, you know, seek out yeah. some scholarship if you're really into it. But, you know, I think you and I also broke it down well. And I think your point probably remains the most important, which is had I heard this conversation before reading, then it would have reframed my entire reading and probably would have made my reading better, honestly. I mean, yeah. I don't want to pat ourselves on the back or anything, but um, <laughs> I do think that, that this is a story where knowing the kind of the point before you start reveals new and more interesting sub points as you read and kind of oh, like, for sure. Yeah. yeah if yeah. I were to reread this again, I, I'm sure that I would come away with it with even more information. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that if you can, can look at it as, as a satire and be told, I mean, you won't know that it's a satire until like midway, which is like kind of also yeah. the point of a satire yeah. a lot of the time. But I if you, so. if you start with that knowledge, I think that you would find a lot more enjoyment in the reading. For sure. Yeah. So I hope we've done our part in that regard. If you do seek out, Henry James wrote about a billion novels and works of <laughs> fiction, nonfiction. So if you seek out any, any Henry James, I think more broadly, he's a person to be read for sure, just for his accomplishments. But mm -hmm. I don't know if this short story is the one. Hopefully we gave you enough to contemplate, though. Um, yeah. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I think... I, you know, it's funny. I, I say it's a one and then I look back and think we just got almost an hour of like a really engaging conversation out of it. So how, I don't know. And in, in a sense, I'm rethinking like, how could this possibly be a one that it, it, it engaged me so well, but yeah. um, anyway, I'm going to stick with it. I think you and I came off and in our conversation gave it a pretty balanced, I don't know, critique. Any final thoughts before we close out today? uh nope i'm good no thanks for the th uh, thoughtfulness there henry james we appreciate it yeah i think next week ryan and i will be resuming the brothers aspect of this pod uh that's the we're threatening that right now we might do some <laughs> world war one poetry uh so check in with us again it's it's a chance for it to be a return of the brothers aspect of the pod though amanda is definitely not going away we will not let her she's on board now for the long haul um so she'll be back soon with us um and until then we will see you between the classics 